0: Philippians chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 to 6. This is the Word of God and it is eternally true. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father, And the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy had worked side by side in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Philippi. And as we're told in Acts, they saw a wonderful harvest come from their labors. And so a local church of Jesus Christ was established there in that city. And here in this book of Philippians, we're reading a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit written by Paul and Timothy, but Paul to this local church. It's a letter then from two men who were the founding pastors and not able to be there at the church in person. They used a letter to speak to them pastorally. I've often wondered why pastors don't do that today. When I was in high school, I was in a youth group and we had a president and he went away to school and he wrote a letter back to us and it always seemed right to me. That uh, there would be communication from someone that you had felt uh, had been your shepherd. I think probably the reason it's not done today is because Pastors who leave a church never want to infringe on the territorial claims of those that come after them. Uh, don't want them to be accused of meddling. Well, I don't think Paul was ever fearful of meddling. I and mean, it's kind of funny even thinking about it. I think that's a good description of every single thing he ever re- wrote. You know, well, here comes Paul. He's meddling again. I think the Presbytery would have disciplined him if he were in the PCA today. Well, it's quite natural that after a move that we're still tied to our Christian family. And you can see the tie in the book of Philippians between Paul and the people that he loved. And it's a very tender book. And so Paul and Timothy then are speaking to this family. And it's very interesting, first of all, to notice that you know, remember that I've told you that in preaching through the book of Galatians, I've disciplined myself, not generally, to refer to Paul as Paul, but rather as the Apostle Paul. And it's because in our postmodern day, we hate authority. And Paul is very firm in asserting the authority of the office of apostle. And he knows that he must not say, well, you know, it's just me and you. And I just wonder whether maybe it might not be true that, you know, He's not interested in massaging your egos by saying to you that he's just one of the guys. But he says apostle. Well, notice here, though, what he says. He says bond servants of Christ Jesus. He doesn't assert his apostolic office. That's kind of an indication of the way things were with Philippi. You know, when your son is, uh, you know, very, very submissive, and is is obeying with joy that's not the time that you assert your authority, is it? He didn't need to assert his authority, but it's very interesting. He still gives his qualification. Of what is it? It's that he's a bond servant and remember when you have somebody in a position of authority over whether it's an, a deacon or an elder or a pastor, whoever it is that asserts their authority in the church, remember that they must do that for the very reason that Paul makes reference to here namely that he's a bond servant we can handle authority lightly that has not been delegated to us but any authority that's been delegated has to be handled very carefully and so he writes them and he says bond servant of Christ Jesus Uh, and then he writes to whom well to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, who are the saints? Well, the saints are those who are being sanctified. Saints are every person who has their faith in Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He says, including the overseers and deacons. Now, why would he put in overseers and deacons? Because he's honoring them publicly. Because he is recognizing the authority of those who have the responsibility of shepherding and caring for this flock. Paul and Timothy bond servants of not of one another, not of the church, but bond servants of Jesus Christ. And out of that comes their service to the church. To all the saints, those who are being made holy as they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and united with Christ, who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The only place we get peace is from God. There is no peace outside of Jesus Christ. We're the ones that have been given the message of reconciliation. Every time you have trendy dudes talking about peace, remember what Bob Dylan says about peace. He says, peace is the moment you stop to reload your gun. And that's it in this world without Christ. But then, on the other hand, remember that you've been given this message of reconciliation. And so, if you see a couple fighting, you have a message of reconciliation. You'd say, well, you shouldn't intervene. If you see some guys fighting outside of a bar, you have a message of reconciliation. If you see a marriage that's being broken, you have a message of reconciliation. What is it? It's Jesus Christ. Peace and grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he goes into the letter proper and he says to them, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, Paul writes to Thessalonians saying, We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers. And then also, chapter 2, verse 13, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it. So Paul's very thankful and he prays with joy. Now, why is it? Well, we see always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of, in other words, because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, it would be very easy to preach verse 6 without preaching verse 5. And last week after um, I got done talking about the necessity of us being uh, new creations in Christ and that if we're not new creations in Christ, that we should be testing ourselves to see if we have truly uh, dwelling within us living faith. Um, I'm going to do the same thing today. Um, remember, there are specific people he's writing to. You say the church. Yes, he is writing to the church. But he's writing specifically to those people who are in the church who have participated in the gospel from the first day until now. And we know that there are many, many places in the Bible that explicitly show and that doctrinally teach that there are people who start and abort. Just like children in the womb. We know our Lord taught this very, very clearly. Maybe the best known parable, other than the prodigal son and the good Samaritan, and maybe the third best, would be what? The parable of the seeds in the soil. And if you go back through church history and you read what people say about that, what they say is that the proportion of seeds that live and bear fruit and those that end up aborting in one form or another, the birds, the, the, the shallowness of the soil, the cares of life, that that itself is instructional from, from God, from our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there are many, many different um, places in Scripture where we see that uh, not all Israel is Israel. Where still today there are many who... Have tasted of the things of the spirit who have given evidence at the beginning but then what does it say in John it says they went out from us why because they were not of us and so when he speaks about the participation in the gospel here he says from the first day until now in other words when it was first proclaimed to them they responded with faith and obedience and they've continued. They're still there. They haven't gone anywhere. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what would be participation in the, in the gospel? What would it be? Well, I think it's work. I don't think it's play. My observation about men is that the best way to get men to love one another and to be committed to one another is to have them work together. And I used to say that it had to be physical work, but I've changed my mind about that. Um, but work does it, doesn't it? Think about Paul. What happened in Philippi? Well, what happened was that, he was that he was beaten. Now, how would the church in Philippi have participated in the gospel with the Apostle Paul? How would they have done it? Well, you know how they would have done it? They would have done it by not forcing him to uh, take a few weeks out of the pulpit uh, and examine himself as to how he had offended people. You know, like Tim Hardaway? You know? We're going to suspend you and give you time to think about how offensive you are. You know... uh, we had, we had some guests, and we were having a meal with them, and they were describing to us a great scandal that's going on in their church. And the scandal is what? Well, of course, you define the scandal, and, and it shows where you stand, right? Uh, it turns out the previous week, the pastor had gotten into the pulpit and uh, talked about his sins and asked the congregation to forgive him. Well, I'm not against humility on the part of pastors and asking for forgiveness. I've done that with a number of you, and I say that so that those of you I haven't done it to know that it may happen sometime. Pastors are 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 uh, very very broken and weak, but are required to hold office. All right. So this guy's up apologizing, and then the story gets a little deeper. The church is completely up in arms. The question. The matter under debate is whether he'll survive. Why? Well, it's a very, very wealthy church. And guess what this man has done? He has preached very, very incisive sermons about wealth. So now this church, and I'm going to be a little bit cynical here, So now this church is participating in the gospel with their pastor by requiring him to get into the pulpit and ask their forgiveness for his various sins. Is that the kind of participation in the gospel that the Philippians did with Paul? When he was beaten, did they get him back into the pulpit to apologize and say how he'd blown it? Now, did Paul blow it? There's only one man righteous, and that's Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was blowing it all the time. You know, the thing I love about the New Testament is when you think of the scandal. I mean, it makes Tim... Am I getting that right? Tim Hardaway? Is that his name? Okay. If you think about the scandal and the anger over Tim's comments, and then you take the Apostle Paul. You take Tim's suffering. You take the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul makes Tim Hardaway's comments. You don't know what he said. Go home and read it on the Internet or pick up a newspaper. But the Apostle Paul's scandal was infinitely more scandalous than anything Tim said or Johnny Rocker or any of these guys that make comments about homosexuality. The Apostle Paul was scandalous. Think of Stephen this morning. You heard the story. What was the scandal of Stephen? What was it? Well, among other things, in the view of the glorious temple, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? He says God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Whoa. Can you imagine saying that at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine in Manhattan? National Cathedral in Washington and the Basilica in Rome. Paid for by Tetzel's indulgences. They participated in the gospel and they did not participate by punishing a faithful pastor who preached the word faithfully. They viewed it as a blessing from God when he rebuked them. And when those who hated God tried and tried and tried and tried again to kill him, the Christians stood with him. They participated in the gospel. You know, I could be wrong. i preached through the book of Acts twice. I've never seen any hint in the book of Acts of people forcing their senior pastor to trot out and apologize that he has been offensive. I may be wrong. Tell me afterwards if you think I'm wrong. Remember Mark Driscoll recently. You know, coming out and saying, I'm sorry that I talked about how uh, wives should look foxy. And then there was something about homosexuality also. It's a great national orgy of apologetics. But it's not the kind C.S. Lewis did. (laughs) It's this constant, you know, we apologize for our great, 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 great grandfathers and for our grandfathers and for our fathers and we apologize for what we did last week and aren't we in touch with our humanity. (laughs) Where Where is the gospel and its scandal? Where is the gospel in its scandal? If you find in your life that every scandal has a sin behind it and must be repented of, you're not a believer in those repentances. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian. You're not faithful in those repentances. You're just reflecting our culture. That's all you're doing. You're constantly appeasing people. And what you're really doing is taking Jesus Christ and his glory and pulling it down to the level that we all live at, which is sort of the level of, you know, there's nobody but us chickens in here. You know, we're all, you know, we're getting along, you know. I I don't think I'm better than you. I'm not arrogant. I don't have any truth. And so when I talk to you about the participation in the gospel, you have to understand that these people had been cut and broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when that gospel was scandalous in the ancient Roman world, which is just like our world, absolutely, boringly, just like our world, all right, when it was scandalous there, they were proud of Jesus Christ. You say, well, they weren't really proud. I said, all right, fine. They glorified Jesus Christ. And they stood with, Paul. remember when they let him down in a basket? The Philippians had participated in the gospel. And so guess what? It's this amazing thing. They have an unbelievably tender relationship with him. I mean, is that really amazing? No, of course not. He's at the edge of death's door again and again and again. And every single Christian that stood there with him, he would die for them. Do you understand that? It's just so basic, at least to men. I mean, to me, I don't have to think about it. You know, I remember those people who stood with me when I was at my last church. And I remember the members of Presbytery who refused to stand with me at my last church. And I pray that I won't be bitter against those who were ashamed of the gospel and of the preaching of the word. And man, you can't. I see Tim Wagner this morning. He gets back from Thailand with Kristen from their short-term missions trip. And you see us hug? What about when you see David and Stephen and me hug? Why? Why do you think we hug? Well, you know, it's just the way that men at this church have of showing they're in touch with their feminine side. (laughs) No, no. We really do love each other. Why? Well, let me count the ways. Let me count the ways. Why do I love John Boykin? I love John Boykin because I've been there when he's fallen. That's why. Because I've seen and he's seen us participate in the gospel with each other. If you're somebody that avoids offense and scandal, all the precious things of God are denied you. It's precisely at the point of the battle that the soldier is found. And it's precisely at the point of battle that true love is clear. And the world has nothing on us. All their talk of diversity and inclusivity and all that bunk that just permeates the academic world. All the talk of brother in the union, right. You know? All this stuff is absolutely counterfeit. The only true reconciliation and the only true love and affection exists is a gift from God, and the place where it's most commonly found is between those who love Jesus Christ. And that's the participation in the gospel. And if you find yourself running from the point of conflict, you may not have the thankfulness of the Apostle Paul because when he was being beaten, you weren't there. Does this make sense to you? They heard the Word of God and they accepted it. They participated in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says, "...for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus." Let me ask you where your confidence lies. If you avoid the places of scandal and the places of suffering, if you avoid the place where the battle is, it's because your confidence is not in Jesus Christ and in His work in you. So where is your confidence? Well, your confidence is going to be in you being a nice guy, you being a good scholar, You being well-published, you having tenure, you having money, you having parents who have money, you having good looks, you having friends who like you, you having children who do a credit to you and not a discredit, you having a husband that is somewhat respectable, you being an American, go overseas, (laughs) gives you a lot of confidence to be an American. What's your confidence in? You say, well, I'm a believer. My confidence is in Jesus Christ. And then I say, is that really true? Is your confidence really in Jesus Christ? Is it really? You know, there's a habit that many people have and have had for the last 50 years of trying to save God from himself. And the way they do this is they say, Jesus Christ has done everything that needs to be done except one thing. And that is belief. You must believe. He's done everything he can except that one thing. And that's for you to do. You need to believe. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's wrong with that? It's true, except the implication is absolutely a lie. Namely, that when you believe, you've done the one thing you can do and you must do. And so a person who believes thinks that they've saved Jesus from being responsible for those that go to hell. See, that's, that's the whole shell game. The shell game is that you say that God has given us free will, and that keeps God from being responsible for the damnation of those who reject His Son. All right? We've got to protect God from that. And so free will will protect God from that. All right? And so God has done everything he can except that one thing that you must do. You must believe. God has set up this world in such a way that you must believe. Now, when you believe, then God is pleased to give you eternal life. Liberals don't even say that. What they say is, God has done everything. And all you need to do is hear that he has done everything. You know, there's not even the qualification that you must believe because belief is unnecessary to a liberal. But then people who reject the sovereignty of God, people who have forgotten that God told Adam that the day he sinned, he would surely die. The people have forgotten that all of us were in Adam when he sinned and that therefore all of us, from the moment of our conception, have been under a death sentence. And that it's absolutely just. That no man can accuse God of being unrighteous. He set the terms. He has the authority to set the terms because He made us and not we ourselves all right, And the terms were death to Adam, to Eve, and to all his progeny when he fell. Once you deal with that, with the nature of original sin, the guilt that comes with it, by natural generation to every single person who has ever been conceived, once you deal with that, then you're not running away trying to clean up after God. Then you realize the fact that anybody got given the blood of Jesus Christ. is an extraordinary grace on God's part. That He gave His own Son to us. And that from His Son we could escape the promise that He made that the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Alright? People, God does not need our protection. God is dignified. What he does is right. He doesn't need to prove himself to be innocent by the terms of fairness that Americans or Western civilized people have. He doesn't need that. And he has decreed that not only is the work of his son a gift, but that the faith by which God is pleased to give us grace is also a gift. And not one of you can point to you believing in Jesus Christ and say, I did the one thing that he couldn't do. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Because the Bible tells us what about faith? For by grace, Ephesians 1, you have been saved, what? Through faith, it's the means that God uses to apply to us the benefits of Christ. And that's how an evangelical would would say it, isn't it? For by grace, you have been saved through faith. I hear some of you mumbling. I think you're a little bit insecure. I think you feel like I haven't quite been faithful to the text. But you know what I mean by that. Evangelicals hate the negatives. But man, not until we hit the negatives do we get the positives. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this. Come on, say it with me. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Come on, say it with me. Not by works. Lest any man should boast. And that man's inclusive. You women are included. for i am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you how did he begin it he began it he began it by giving you faith that's how he began it now has he given you real faith has he given you faith many of you will say to me yes he's given me faith i believe And I praise God for you, and like Paul, I give thanks for you always in my prayers. Our hearts are bound together. This is a church that has a relationship with its pastors, just like the Philippian church with Paul. And let me tell you, I've had other churches, I wouldn't say that to. I just don't say that to my churches, all right? The sweetness of the relationship in this church. I remember David Crumb standing up in Presbytery when they were deciding whether or not they'd allow me to serve this church as your pastor. And this is what David Crum said. He said, oh my, he said, those people love their pastor. And it's true. I am loved by you. And it's not because of me. You have every reason to spit me out of your mouth. So we live together in love because he first loved us. And you have not been ashamed of the scandal of the gospel. There are some of you, though, who have not been given the gift of faith. You're faithful in attending the means of grace. You come every single week, you sit under the preaching of the word, you sit under prayer, you read your Bible, you listen. But God's never done a work of grace in your heart. God has not given you faith. And what I would say to you is, believe. And you say, well, you just got done telling me that it was a gift. How can you command me to do something that's a gift? And I say, that's what Scripture does all the time. It commands us to do something that we can't. And that's why the precious prayer of the people of God through the centuries has always been, Command what you will, and then give me what you command. And so if you don't believe, don't think that you're hopeless. Don't think that there's any sin that is not able to be covered by the blood of Christ. Remember, there's no sin taken you but which is common to man. And God has made a way of escape. And the principal escape is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's your escape. Believe in the blood of Christ for you. Now, if God has given you the gift of faith, what does it say here? Here's what it says. I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let me read what Calvin says about this. He says... God is not like men, so as to be wearied out or exhausted by conferring kindness. God doesn't get tired of being kind, being gracious, being merciful. So therefore, let believers exercise themselves in constant meditation upon the favors which God confers, that they may encourage and confirm hope as to the time to come and that they may always ponder in their mind this syllogism. God does not forsake the work which his own hands have begun. We are the work of his hands. Therefore, he will complete what he has begun in us. In other words, what's the basic definition of good work? It's work that's completed. You've had to teach your children. Maybe as a child, you were taught to finish a job. You have to finish a job. My illustration this morning is, for some reason, God miraculously caused me to decide to start my wife's car before I left our house this morning. It was a cold morning. And Taylor's taken up doing this, and Taylor's been my example. So I thought, you know, he's sick today, so I'll do it for Mary Lee. But there was a battle inside me because I needed to look at my notes more. And so I thought, really, I don't have time because, you know, I have to look at the sermon notes. And then I thought, you scumbag. Go back in and get the keys and start the car. And so the battle was over quickly. I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I went back in. And right inside a front door is a little shelf where all the keys are kept. So I went up on the shelf, and were hands, keys, everybody keys, but not my wife's keys. No keys to the Honda Odyssey, the van- minivan, right? None. And then I thought, well, this is too much to ask from me. Slimeball. I mean, I had the right inclination. Now, what would you think of me if I told you that I decided at that moment that giving two minutes instead of one minute was really a hill too high? Slimeball. You'd be disgusted with me. Right? So then I went looking for her keys. Found her purse in the kitchen, took the keys out of the bottom of the purse, went out, started the car, and guess what? Everything's worked out okay. I know it's hard to believe. Now look at that little, little thing. And what is it? Well, it's an indication of the fact that you start a job, you finish the job. If we have a basic knowledge of what it means to do good work and we understand it means you finish the job, why would we think that God would give up on us? Huh? Brandon, God won't give up on you. He'll finish his work. I'm confident. And I don't know who else of you have true faith and don't believe God's going to finish the work, but I'm confident. I'm confident. And I do know it's hard. I know it's hard. You know, the pastors and the elders are at the intersection where terrible suffering and pain goes on. And you become inured to it after a time. And as you get older, it's harder. Yesterday we had a hard meeting. A bunch of men, hard meeting. And when the meeting was over, Dave Carell and I looked at each other and we said, you know, baling hay is nothing compared to this work. 95% humidity, 100 degree day, before kick balers. Pew, 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 you know, pew. And you get tired and you got hay in your hair and you're just so, so exhausted and filthy and sweaty and salty and... And that's nothing compared to a husband who leaves you. It's nothing compared to embezzling. It's nothing compared to the pain that you people go through. But remember, how does God treat his sons? I am convinced that he began a good work in you. Work, 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 work. You say, oh, please, do I have to hear about work again? What is the work of God in you? Well, Hebrews tells us in chapter 12, it's discipline. God will not stop disciplining me. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that give you confidence, is my flock, that God's still disciplining me? Isn't that what you want? And He won't stop disciplining you. So stop crying. You haven't yet shed blood. He's going to finish it. You're not dependent on me. You're not dependent on your faith. You're not dependent on your belief. You're not dependent upon having some nirvana experience where the hair stands up on the back of your neck. You're dependent on the one who began the work, Jesus Christ. He is your faith, and He will finish because He's a good workman. Let's pray.